open your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the book of Joshua. We're continuing this morning in our journey through Joshua and the people of Israel in the Promised Land. And today's chapter closes a certain section of the book that told us all about the battles and the conquering of the land. So the first four chapters was about Israel entering into the land. And from 5 to 12, this chapter here was about the taking of the land. And then the remaining chapters deals with Israel's possession of the land. Now, before we start reading this chapter, I thought it's probably good to remind ourselves of what Paul wrote to Timothy. And he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This might be one of those chapters at first glance when you look at it, humanly speaking, it may be a bit challenging to read. Maybe for your morning devotions or with your family, you would find it a bit hard to to read all these names. You probably wouldn't pick it as your wedding text or your grad theme text. Maybe you're dealing with very difficult circumstances in your life at the moment and you're trying to figure out how to go from here and to come out of your present distress and you read this chapter and you go, well, how can this help me? How can this inoculate me from my failure or my unbelief? How can it build my faith? How can it enlarge my view of God? How can it encourage me along the way? How can it keep me from the sin that so easily besets me? How can I get a more eternal view of God and the perspective of my life in this chapter? Well, let us be reminded of what Paul wrote there to Timothy, that all scripture has been inspired. God breathed. He's preserved it for us. He's kept it for you and me to be edified, to be corrected, to be rebuked and encouraged, and to be fully furnished, it says, to be faithful servants and followers of our Lord Jesus, who is the Word made flesh. Yes, there are sections where the comforting words may be more on the surface, as it were, ready to be consumed at once, and there's other sections, or in this section, you wouldn't read to someone who has two hours to live, perhaps. And there are other sections where you have to dig a little bit deeper, where we need the help of the Lord, as with other sections too, but to see if we can find anything there for us. All of God's Word is of value. So, with that in mind, when reading this chapter and the chapters to come or other chapters that you come across, um, let us uh, be aware that it is far from repetitive or tedious or boring or uneventful. But let us be quick to, um, slow to speak and quick to hear what the Lord has written. The Lord has placed his words for us in including sections like this. And we ought to receive it with eagerness and with holy reverence. I believe Spurgeon told an account of a man in his church. He was lost, but he was awakened by reading the genealogies in Genesis 5. 
at the end of every man's life it says, and then he died. And so and so lived so and so long, and then he died. And the man thought, oh, they all died. So must I once. And it awakened him, and he came to faith in the Lord Jesus. It was R.C. Sproul who was one night with a friend. He was going to go out to the a night of bar hopping with a friend, and he quickly went back into the dorm again to get some cigarettes, and he saw another friend. And they were steeped over a book of uh, uh, the Bible, and they were witnessing to him. And his Christian friend, out of all the verses, showed him this one from Ecclesiastes 11, verse 3. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if the tree fall towards the south or towards the north, <clears throat> in the place where the tree falleth, there it will be. And all of a sudden, it cut R.C. Sproul in two. He saw himself as that tree. He saw that he was in a state of paralysis, that he was lost, that he was rotting away, lost and unholy. And he left his friend and he went to the dorm room and he fell on his knee before the Lord, praying to forgive him, praying to save him. He never made it to the bars that night. And seemingly one obscure verse changed him and God made him a pillar of the church and one that will be beneficial for generations to come. So with that in mind, let us read that chapter 12. Now these are the kings of the land which the children of Israel smote and possessed their land on the other side of Jordan towards the rising of the sun from the river Arnon unto Mount Hermon and all the plain of the east, Shihon the king of the Amorites who dwelled in Heshbon and ruled from Arur which is upon the bank of the river Arnon and from the middle of the river and from half Gilead even unto the river Jabbok which is the border of the children of Ammon. And from the plain to the sea of Shinaroth on the east, and unto the sea of the plain, even the salt sea on the east, the way of Bashirimoth, and from the south under Ashtoth Pesgah, and the coast of Og, king of Bashan, which was the remnant of the giants that dwelt at Astaroth and at Idrai and reigned in Mount Hermon, and in Salka, and in all Bashan, unto the borders of the Gershagites, and the Machichites, <laughs> and half Gilad, and the border of Shihon, and the king of Hesbon. Them did Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel smite. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it for possession unto the Reubenites and the Gatites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And these are the kings of the county which Joshua and the children of Israel smote on this side of Jordan, on the west, from Balgad in the valley of Lebanon, even unto Mount Halak that goeth up to Seir, which Joshua gave unto the tribes of Israel for possession, according to their divisions, in the mountains and in the valleys, in the plains and in the springs, in the wilderness, in the south country, 
the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho won, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won, the king of Jerusalem won, the king of Hebron won, the king of Jarmut won, the king of Lachish won, the king of Eglon won, the king of Gezer won, the king of Debir won, the king of Gader won, the king of Horamath won, the king of Arat won, the king of Libna won, the king of Abdullam won, the king of Makeda won, the king of Bethel won, the king of Tape won, the king of Hefer won, the king of Apek won, the king of Lasharon won, the king of Madon won, the king of Hazer won, the king of Shimmeron Meron won, the king of Ashab won, the king of Tanakh won, the king of Megiddo won, the king of Kadesh won, the king of Jognam of Carmel won, the king of Dor in the coast of Dor won, the king of the nations of Gilgal won, the king of Terza won, all kings thirty and one. So in this chapter, we see a broad summary, a list, a tally of the conquest of the land of Canaan. Not only that, but we also see a reminder about what Moses had conquered in his day. We see a geographical outlay and description of the land that is now in their possession and of all that that Joshua had achieved. So imagine yourself being one of those people that first got a copy of the book of Joshua in your hands. What comfort would it be? What lessons would there be from it in this chapter? I would like to call your attention this morning to three points. One is the recalling of the faithfulness of God towards his people. Seeing, and the next one is the unity of his people. And the other one, that number three, is the itemizing of the blessing resulting in the thankfulness of his people. The recalling of the faithfulness of God. You'll notice that the chapter starts not with the victories of Joshua here in Canaan proper, but it goes all the way to the victories, all the way back to the victories that came through Moses while they were on their way to Canaan. And there is a parallel drawn between Moses and Joshua. Both of them were mighty servants of God. Many commentators speak of that, that part of the Jordan as Transjordan. That region that was originally not planned for them, but was given to the two and a half tribes upon their request. Verse, verse 1 speaks of this area now present in the country of Jordan, Jordania, and speaking as the land of the rising sun on the other side of the river Jordan. So in these first six verses, the writer takes us back so we can remember the faithfulness to God to a previous generation. You see in verse 6, it is written twice that Moses was the servant of the Lord. Though he is long dead now, his works and his obedience and his servanthood are remembered. Perhaps you can recall yourself things that other believers did for you. 
or for your family that have never been forgotten. It was an example to you and it stayed with you for the rest of your life. Moses, of course, was a servant of God. He was called by that burning bush and he obeyed, sometimes with much trepidation, but he obeyed that call that God had given him upon his life. Moses was also a faithful servant, not only to God, but also to the people of God. He was a true shepherd. He watched for his flock. He is called the most humble person on earth. And one of the ways that it shows that he was extremely patient when it came to the people of God, who were so prone to wandering and to complaining. At one point, they were ready to kill him. You remember, I think few of us would have stayed with this group were it not for a large measure of the Spirit of God upon Moses, he may have done the same, for he's just flesh and blood as well. Nevertheless, we see his works are remembered and recalled, as will yours be and mine on that great day. And even now, among the saints, Paul writes to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2 and 3, he said, We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. He encourages them, he recognizes their labor of love, their gifts. Later on in Hebrews 6, verse 10, he writes, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed towards his name, in that ye have ministered to his saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So Paul writes here to the Hebrews and encourages them to look ahead, to look to the gospel promises, to serve the Lord. And by, by ministering to the saints, not only great and mighty deeds, but as ordinary as giving a cup of cold water is remembered, as the Lord Jesus recalls. So the writer recalls the territory gained on the other side of Jordan. Two mighty kings were slain. Those were very large sections of land in these 31 kings, some of them were very small. They may only have a small kingdoms of a few thousand people. But some of these kings that Moses subdued were very large. And we read about King Sihon, for instance, who dwelt in, in um, Hezbron in Numbers 21, verse 21 to th 32. And Moses gives them more of a commentary on it in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 2, verse 26 to 3, verse 11. Perhaps you recall the story. Moses had politely asked that they would, could pass through the country to get through to Canaan. He promised that they would not eat or drink or eat anything from their wells or their vineyards without paying anything. And they would just pass through on the king's highway. And they would be out of the area. Well, unfortunately, Charity was not one of this king's dispositions. And he decided to mass his army against the people of Israel. And that often happened, right? They started it. They, they came up 
against him. And you see here that that aids old picture of the serpent, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. From Genesis to Revelation, we, we see this battle, don't we? We obviously, this king had not heard the news from Egypt and the defeat of Pharaoh because God had hardened his heart as well. At any rate, the battle was fierce and swift and Israel won and gained that territory and its villages and its cities as well. Then in verse 4, we read the defeat of Big Og, the king of Bashan. And Bashan is mentioned often in the Psalms. He was a remnant of the giants living in the lands of giants. Deuteronomy 3 verse 11 says his bed was so big it was made of steel. It was 13 feet long, 6 feet wide. And even though the Israelites felt as grasshoppers perhaps, he and his sons all fell by the sword and they were defeated. So in those first six verses, they recall, the writer recalls the faithfulness of God in the past before they entered into the land. It was remembered in Psalm 36, where the psalmist sings, and slew famous kings for his mercy endured forever. Shihon, the king of the Amorites, for his mercy endureth forever. And Og, the king of Bashan, for his mercy endureth forever. In Psalm 135, the psalmist kind of mocks the gods that these kings have. And he writes, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of man's hand. They have mouth. But they speak not. Eyes they have, but they hear not. Uh, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouth. They are made like. They are them are like. Sorry, they that are them are like them. So is everyone that trusted in them. The psalmist not only brings these victories to a remembrance, but also as an aid of worship. He highlights the fake gods of these nations, that they are useless, idols, they cannot help. So Matthew Henry writes so nicely about this section. He said, note, fresh mercies must not drown the remembrance of former mercies, nor must the glory of the present instrument of good to the church be suffered to eclipse and diminished by the, by the ones we have now. Joshua's services and achievements are great, but let not those under Moses be overlooked and forgotten, since God was the same who brought him about, and both put together proclaim him, the Alpha and the Omega of Israel's great salvation. It's interesting to note, too, that even though Moses was the leader at that time, it was Joshua, he was the Captain of the host, he was the general who won these battles. Moses, of course, is always a picture of the law, the lawgiver, and ultimately he did not lead the people into the promised land. But Joshua did as a great type of Christ. He leads, he leads his people into rest. He fights every enemy until it is finished, as we heard last week. And so readies them to inherit the inheritance that was waiting for them. The law 
as good as it is, cannot bring us to our heavenly Canaan, but our perfect Redeemer can, having fully obeyed the law. In this chapter, the faithfulness of God is also proclaimed that the promise was fulfilled, given to Abraham some 440 or so years ago. First given to Abraham in Genesis 15, God had appeared to him. He had moved him out of Ur. There he was a pagan idolater with his fathers, and God chose him out of the mass of humanity and made a nation for himself. Abraham obeyed, and God made a covenant with him, promising offspring as the stars of heaven, promising him land. And now all this time, later, 440 years later, they entered into the land. It will also show future generation and to us that God can and must be trusted. No promise will ever fail. Yes, much had happened between that time. We're talking for a long time, a long time in slavery in Egypt, a long time of wandering. Nevertheless, God is not slack concerning his promises. And his timetable is sure. No king, no army, no chariot, will ever thwart, even for a moment, his plan. And this chapter is kind of the great amen to that promise given so long ago. Abraham was very old when those promises came to him. Humanly speaking, he was long, long past the age of childbearing. Romans 4 says, But he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Another reason <clears throat> why we have the recalling of this account, and leads me to the second point, is the unity of the people of God. When Moses, Moses captured the kingdoms of Og and Sihon, both Reuben and Gath had asked that they could stay on that side of Canaan. The account is found in Numbers 32, and you can read it there. They basically said, listen, it looks pretty nice down here. There's a lot of cattle. We are cattle keepers. Uh, we don't want to go over into the promised land, but we can stay here and do our business. Now, Moses wasn't exactly thrilled with that request, and he rebuked them sharply. He basically called them a bunch of cowards, a bunch of sluggards, and reminded them this was the same attitude in a way that the returning spies had. And they were tempting the Lord by asking this. Are you going to be sitting around, he says, while the rest of us are getting the land inch by inch, king by king? You're calling out the wrath of God. Do you want this generation also to die in the wilderness? Well, with that being said, they made a promise that all fighting men would go over to Jordan and fight until all the land was conquered. And Moses agreed then to give him this land, and we'll see that as you move further into Joshua, provided that they kept up to the deal. And later, the half-tribe of Manasseh would get a portion there as well. So Moses' wrath was appeased, and they fought as a unified body, all the enemies of God, as the law of God had required them. They did so. And once they were they would go back to their families across the Jordan. 
Three times in this chapter, in, in verses 1, 5, and 6, the writer tells us it is the nation as a whole that smote, that fought, and that overtook the enemies. It's a unity project. It's a chapter that reminds all the tribes not to forget each other once they're in their own sections of land. And this comes later into question in chapter 22 about these tribes that are at the Transjordan. And this can apply to the unity of the church as well, isn't it? We are all believers. We're born again in one body, one church, redeemed by the same Savior who cried, it is finished on Calvary's cross. How watchful do we need to be to keep that unity in our local body, to protect the body, its unity, to ensure that we engage each one with one another, each of its members, the young with the old, the old with the young. No matter the status of one's bank account or appearance, as James speaks about in James chapter 2, or perhaps some people are not quite the same in personality traits or interests that you have. Don't shy away from them, right? Engage them. Show an interest in one another. As one commentator writes, he said, in the end, God has always picked losers. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. This counts in the local church, but also in the church at large. <clears throat> in heaven we'll meet believers who have disagreed with us on the sovereignty of God, on baptism perhaps, end times, other things. Yet all true born-again saints will be singing the same song in front of the Lamb that was slain. The third point I would like to point out is the itemizing of God's blessings and the result into thanksgiving. So basically, in the latter portion of this, we have a long list, kind of a, a bookkeeper's notebook, as it were. First, we see the Earlier we see the geographical list, the borders, the description of the area that is now was theirs. The north, the east, the south, and the west. It was just not a barren piece of land, but it was a very fertile and rich land. 31 kingdoms had been defeated, showing there was enough land and crops to support all these nations. When Moses had spoken, when God had spoken to Moses, he said, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and will bring them up out of that land unto a good land, a large one, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And when Moses had to calm down the people after the spies had brought a negative report, he said to them, if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us, he will bring us into this land to give it to us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. It was a rich land, as God had promised them. 
that was in store for them. God is rich in mercy and was and is eager to lavish his blessing upon his people. The writer in verses 1 to 8 describes the land, this land of milk and honey, as filled with mountains, fruitful valleys, plains, and springs, reminding the people not to forget the mercy and the goodness of the Lord towards them. It was the gift from him to his people. And just as God told Moses, he said, I am come down to deliver them out of Egypt into this land. And in the person of Joshua, they did. He slew the enemy. He conquered every frightening foe, every walled city, every giant that had to bet the size of your living room, every horse and chariots. And he brought the people into the land. And once again, Joshua points us to his great namesake, the one that is greater than Joshua, the Lord Jesus, who indeed came down for us. He dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, conquered sin and death. Second Peter 1, verse 3. According to his divine power hath he given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him, that called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. As God sought out Adam and Eve when they were hiding in the garden after they sinned, so God, in the person of Christ, came down to bring us to God to bring us out of Egypt, as it were, a type of the world, to bring it out of slavery, to bring us out of sin and false God. The Lord Jesus, through the work of the cross, as we looked at last week closely, finished that work completely, 100%. Nothing else can be added. And by faith in that finished work, he'll bring us to the heavenly Canaan. And just as Israel was brought into the land by God, so he leads his people to heaven. John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, also believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. So the writer reminds the people of God of the material blessings to them that they would richly enjoy. Yet it was pointing to something greater. Then we see the long list of 31 kings. And some of them we have come across in those first chapters in in uh, Joshua, the king of Ai, the king of Jericho, Lachish, the one that led the revolt. Others are new. They're not included in those earlier chapters. So it shows you the length of these battles that happened. Now, as I started out this morning, and as Ralph Davis points out, he said, this list may not give you exactly a warm glow of devotional warmth if you read it. 
How does this list, when you read it, prepare you for a day at work or at home with a bunch of loud kids or just a regular day out in the world with all the temptation that will come your way? <clears throat> well, think of this list, reading it shortly after all these things has happened. Seven years of war, seven years of hard work for the soldiers. You notice that every, after every king is mentioned, it says one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Hefner, one. The king of Madon, one, and so on. Thirty, one in total. The writer is counting, isn't he? He's mentioning each by name, one by one. And when you would have been present as one of the soldiers, or perhaps your father or your grandfather, you would have said, this list is far from boring, tedious or repetitive. If I would travel back in time and meet one of these soldiers, said, ah, it seems kind of like a boring list. What would he have said to me? He said, he would have said, seven years of fighting and winning every battle is boring to you. It warms my heart every time I read it. It enlivens my faith when I am down. And when I'm prone to forget the mercies of the Lord, I'm reading it again. I'm telling this to my children and grandchildren as we sung this morning. It's a list that is full of the glory of God. It's a list that reflects both the goodness and the severity of God, isn't it? The goodness for his people and the severity for those that perished. That message is still the same. You see, it's one of these, though briefly mentioned, was an account of the faithfulness of God, of his power, his glory, the veracity of his promises. Each battle was different, and we looked at a number of them. Some of them were spectacular, with walls crumbling down and hailstones targeting the enemy. Others were old-fashioned warfare and hard work. With AI, there was that setback with the sin of Achan, but once the judgment had happened on him, victory was had. Each kingdom that fell had a story that you could probably write a book about and was conquered by Joshua. The odds were against him. These were settled kingdoms. Their walls were well built. The chariots were ready against Israel. Nomads having only, and I say that reverently, only God as their aid. And it shows that we never trust in the power or the wisdom of men, but the power of God. And each, of course, it was the Lord's doing, just as he promised all those years ago to Abraham, that all these nations would fall. Time does not weaken or delay his promises. John, Common, John Calvin comments about this list, and he says, this list places before our very eyes a living picture of the goodness of God. So this should enliven our spirit when we are down and when our faith is low. This list reminds us too to count our blessings, 
to be thankful for all those that the Lord, all those things that the Lord gives to us. Not a general, Lord, I thank you for all your blessings, but a detailed list of small blessings and great ones, some that happened a long time ago, perhaps, blessings of faithful fellowship, name them, blessings that are in our homes, blessing of vocation, of health, thankfulness for the growth in grace that as Christians we experience, thankfulness for the battles that we win against sin, which are a lot harder to fight than any of these kings, isn't it? And thank you, of course, of course, for the Lord Jesus Christ who makes us conquerors. Thank you for the work on the cross. Thankfulness for near misses and thankfulness that God had spared you when you were like one of these kings and you didn't die. Have you ever considered that all of us are born into a list like this? Hardened, evil, wicked and proud. And this would be you if it were not by the grace of God who have translated you from his kingdom from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of his dear son. I often think as a kid of a near miss we had an old little vehicle that we would play with at home and I wasn't all too bright back then and uh, no jokes <laughs> and uh, we would come home at lunchtime and drive this old little vehicle and I always liked airplanes so what I thought would be fun to get a real long beam and to put it in front of us open the windows and we had a wings well, while I was driving it there was a big post and I missed it but as soon as I saw it and maybe I was 12 or 13 I go like oh, this is really stupid but suppose I would have not missed it right where would I have been I wasn't a believer and we can all have accounts of that that we can be thankful for. Have you no list of blessings and mercies to thank the Lord for? Think of how much fear and doubt and unbelief would be unburdened if we regularly had a great view and remembrance of all of our blessings and the Lord's goodness to us. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thine diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, and crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Ralph Davis writes, itemizing God's goodness is always the method of biblical faith. It is as faith gives thanks in detail that faith is nurtured, encouraged, takes on fresh heart to expect more mercies. One thing all these king and the people had in all these kings and their people had in common, other than being smitten by Joshua, that they were enemies of God and his people. Their iniquities 
had come to its fullness and their day had come. Some of these kings had kingdom that had been there for, since Abraham for over 400 years. Perhaps they thought it would last forever. But their wealth and their power were brought to naught. And sudden destruction came upon them when they thought all was peaceful. All was safe. And their man-made gods brought them no release, relief. On each one of these gravestones could be read, Idolater and an enemy of God. And at this moment, they're suffering the just wrath of God. So this list does something else, does it not? Is it not a warning? Another signpost, far from boring and empty, that stands out on life's highway, a large billboard. Am I on this list? Am I on the highway that leads to destruction? Am I like one of these proud kings making war against God? Mining myself, living in my own proud citadel. I'm my own king and no one tells me what to do. Oh, the trouble and the danger we're in, if that is our state, and if that is our relation to the king of kings. For surely as these kings were beaten and just, so surely will all of us be judged by the man whom God has sent, Christ Jesus, the heavenly Joshua. This Joshua on earth did not smite the enemies as Joshua did, but let himself be smitten by them. Let himself be captured and conquered and killed by them. And even in those final moments, as we heard last week, before he bowed his head, he prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This gives us a picture of the great long-suffering and the mercy of the triune God. Christ, in his greatest agony, he's praying for his enemies. Do we? And his prayer was answered shortly, wasn't it? Under the preaching at Pentecost. Many of them that were there were converted. Pardon is extended to the greatest of sinners, as Paul could testify. Mercy extended to the chiefest of sinners. Look to him and live. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. Why would you look anywhere else? <coughs> this chapter once again gives us a preview, a pledge of the time to come, what John wrote in Revelation eleven fifteen, And the seven angels shouted, and there was a great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let us now call upon him if you have not done so. Believe on the Son and have life. Believe on the Son and be found in the book of life. That lists of all lists. Then with the Psalmist 103 we can say, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. 
He hath not dealt with us after our sins, not rewarded us according to our iniquities. But as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy to them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Lord, as we close a section with much battles and bloodshed, Father, we, um, we just thank you for your mercy. Lord, we thank you for the mercy that was shown to us at the cross, the bloodshed, the battle that was won by our great Redeemer. Father, I pray for everyone here. Lord, maybe we are in a state of, we're believers, but we haven't looked for a long time at the mercy that's been extended to us, at the blessings that we have had. Lord, will you aliven us to see him, that we could indeed praise you for all your mercy. Pray for those that are like these kings outside of Christ. Father, would you draw them to yourself. Thank you that you are a willing and able Savior, and none that come to you will ever be cast away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.